Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm recording from my childhood bedroom in central New Mexico. And I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston, also envisioning Damian sitting in his bedroom with his favorite binky. (laughs) And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It is Thursday, December 20th, and here's what's on the docket this week. IBM's Watson Health business has fallen spectacularly short on its promise to use artificial intelligence to revolutionize medicine. Our stat colleague, Ike Sweatlitz, joins us to talk about the company's latest setback in China. This is our last podcast of 2018, so we're going to gaze into our crystal balls to look ahead to 2019. We'll brief you on the biggest stories in biotech to watch in the new year. And then we'll interview Ed Kay, the former Sarepta Therapeutics CEO who steered the company to that controversial approval for a drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We'll ask Ed to reflect on that saga and to tell us about what he's up to at his new startup. And finally, we're going to bring back a special type of lightning round. We're going to pepper Ed Kay with rapid fire questions in which he must pick one of two options. And then we'll ask him to defend his opinion. But first, a word about Stat Plus. If you enjoy listening to The Read Out Loud, consider subscribing to Stat Plus. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. That's 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. It has been a long eight years since IBM supercomputer called Watson wowed the world by beating human competition on the game show Jeopardy. Now the last clue. Even a broken one of these on your wall is right twice a day. Watson. What is clock? Clock is correct. And with that, you move up to 23,440. IBM's Watson Health business heavily promoted its artificial intelligence products as a way to help doctors make cancer treatment recommendations, match patients to clinical trials, and analyze data for drug companies and hospitals. But those promises have fallen spectacularly short, as our stat colleagues Ike Svetlitz and Casey Ross have reported in a series of investigative stories over the last 16 months. Ike and Casey's latest story is about China, which is the latest disappointment from IBM Watson Health. And it's an important story because the company had been banking on China to help make up for well-publicized setbacks in the U.S. and in Europe. We're joined today by aforementioned stat reporter Ike Sweatlitz. He's calling in from Washington to tell us more about where IBM Watson Health went wrong in China. Hey, Ike. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Ike, what is IBM Watson Health trying to do in China in the first place? So in general, they're trying to help Chinese doctors treat cancer. Um, They're one of the main uh, pieces of software they're using for that is a piece of software called Watson for Oncology, which looks at individual uh, uh, patients based on their medical records and then makes recommendations to doctors for how to uh, how how to treat them. And Ike, what did your reporting show about how IBM Watson Health's efforts are going in China? So we showed that they are uh, uh, definitely struggling at this point. Um, There's been a lot of criticism in the Chinese press recently uh, after Casey and I reported that uh, IBM knew that this Watson for Oncology software might give uh, unsafe or incorrect 
treatment advice. Um, so there were five hospitals uh, recently that have delayed using uh, Watson for Oncology in, in, in light of all this news. And of course, this China story is just the tip of the iceberg. You and Casey have been covering the story aggressively all year. Uh, you know, for listeners who might not have been following along, I, could you give us a like a bird's eye view of IBM Watson Health, like what basically seems like a terrible, horrible, kind of no good, very bad 2018 on on what is a global scale here? Yeah. So one of the big things that's happened is that the company has has laid off a bunch of workers um, as they struggled to integrate a bunch of companies that they acquired before. They spent about $4 billion buying these health data companies and then uh, uh, realized that it was uh, harder than they thought to get the data that was all in different formats from different places, um, you know, to be able to work, uh, work, work together with, with, with the other data that they have. Um, so they, they had a lot of those layoffs. Um, at the same time, we've been reporting that what this flagship software, Watson for Oncology, the company actually knew it had a lot more problems than they were letting on publicly, and yet they were still selling it around the world. So that's been um, a, a, a pretty, pretty bad for their uh, uh, reputation and their business, as we've been showing in, in, in China. So we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the biggest scandals in healthcare in recent years, whether it's the Theranos debacle or the Martin Scarley price hike or, or what happened at Valiant Pharmaceuticals. How would you compare what's happened with IBM Watson Health to some of these other corporate meltdowns that we've seen in the same space? So one of the things I think it's important to keep in mind is that IBM Watson Health is just sort of one business division of IBM, and IBM is this huge global company, um, and I, I think it sort of remains to be seen how uh, much the trouble in this one division is going to impact the rest of the company. I, I think that's something that uh, sort of uh, sets makes makes this a little different from you know, Martin Shkreli and what was going on at Valiant is that uh, a lot of the challenges that IBM is 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 facing are are not directly impacting patients yet. Um, you know, it's not sort of a thing like high drug prices that everyone can relate and say, oh, I went to see the artificial intelligence doctor, right? Like, uh, uh, it's 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 more of um, uh, sort of a a warning for the future. So, like, I'm curious to hear what you're going to be watching with IBM Watson Health in 2019. What are the biggest challenges the business is going to face? And does the company have a shot at redemption? I think that one of the challenges is is going to be to see how transparent they are in the future about how their artificial intelligence software works. The company, uh, top company executives have talked about the importance of transparency, and we've seen over this past year that they... Um, misrepresented how some of their software worked. Um, you know, that's something that we're going to be watching to see if that uh, if that changes in the coming year. Um, and I think that uh, something else is that it's it's going to be interesting to see um, how much of a focus IBM keeps on health. Um, there are a lot of companies using artificial intelligence in healthcare. Um, I, uh, people are realizing around the world that IBM is not the only player here. Um, that which is what they might have thought a few years ago. Um, so uh, curious, you know, how, how much of a focus um, they're, they're going to keep there. All right, Ike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Our guest this week is a familiar name in biotech circles. Ed Kay was the CEO of Sarepta Therapeutics during its headline-grabbing quest to win FDA approval for a controversial drug. Now, Ed runs a startup working on medicines for severe genetic diseases. Ed, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. 
So Ed, a lot of people know you from your time at Sarapta Therapeutics, but your latest job is running a company called Stoke Therapeutics. Can you explain to us in the simplest terms possible how Stoke's technology works? Yeah, so Stoke it was a very interesting idea that came out of the laboratory of Adrian Craner at Cold Springs Harbor. And Adrian Craner, as you guys probably know, was the inventor of Spinraza. So Adrian had an idea that you could actually um, improve the efficiency of splicing and increase protein uh, levels. And it turns out that about 20-25% of genes can be upregulated this way. So we had the idea that there are a lot of diseases, um, like genetic epilepsies, that are uh, considered autosomal dominant, where you're missing half of the protein. And so this seemed to be an ideal method to get the protein level back up to normal and address the specific genetic cause of, of th diseases like ep epilepsies, and we're also looking at genetic causes of blindness. So it's, it's pretty much the opposite of um, what a lot of companies are doing, like Ionis and Elmylam, where they're bringing down toxic proteins. We're just increasing the normal protein, and it's completely mutation independent. Uh, we just uh, give back the protein that's missing in, most of the time in these children. So the most advanced project you have right now is for Dravet syndrome. It's a rare disorder uh, that leads to seizures. Um, the FDA recently approved a cannabinoid drug for Dravet. How was your approach different from that? So I kind of grew up in an era in um, pediatric neurology where the only thing we ever had was anticonvulsants. And I think, I, you know, if we look at an anticonvulsant, and, and, you know, certainly I was taught that uh, they're probably the second most dangerous thing that you can give uh, in pediatrics, the first being uh, basically chemotherapy. And what anticonvulsants do is they're, in some ways, they're neurotoxins. They suppress brain activity and keep the electrical activity from overflowing and causing a seizure. So what we're doing is to address the proximate cause of the disease and actually go after the genetic cause. So th if I think back 20 years ago, we used to have a, um, a term called idiopathic epilepsy. That was about, about half of all epilepsies was idiopathic. Turns out that most of these are all genetic and there's a specific gene. And so what happens though is that you can control the seizure like with cannabidiol and, and try to get the seizure um, frequency down, but it doesn't address all the other problems. So all of the children with DRAVE, it's a relentlessly progressive disease that you lose uh, intellectual ability, you lose the ability to walk, to speak. Controlling the seizures does not address those problems. So what, what happened, it was interesting a year ago, um, and it was uh, Dr. Amy Brooks-Kyle, who was actually uh, one, of, one of my trainees when I was at the Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia. And she was then the, the um, president of the American Epilepsy Society. And she's a very talented uh, woman who um, uh, has just focused on epilepsy and pediatrics. And she said, what we need now is to treat the genetic causes of these epilepsies. Anticonvulsants are not good enough. And we, we were sitting in the audience kind of smiling and go, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're going after it and we're trying to hit it hard because I think that's the, the next future uh, to treat some of these uh, epilepsies. So let's go back in time a little bit. It's 2016, you are the CEO of Sarepta Therapeutics and the company is trying to win FDA approval for a drug to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I think you know we all remember the controversy surrounding that situation from the outside, but I'm curious, what was it like you know, inside the company running running the ship during that process? 
I don't remember it was that controversial. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it went swimmingly. You know? <laughs> well, it was challenging, as you can imagine. And uh, obviously, we were kind of living day to day. And it was, uh, um, I, I think the thing that I was most proud of is during that time, we did not lose one employee. Everyone said, we are saying, we're going to see this all the way through. We think this is really important. We have a lot of uh, boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy that we feel we have an obligation. Um, so we hung in there and we had to go through a small riff and uh, try to reduce our cash burn as much as possible. And so it was a little uh, challenging, but I think we just you know, persevered. And I think it was, um, uh, you know, at the end, it was, it was, it was very gratifying to, to see these patients be able to, to get on this therapy. And I think the way we looked at it is this was the first step. And then I think what's happening now is the whole field of Duchenne muscular dystrophy has exploded. Now it's gene therapy. And it's really only been a couple of years. And now suddenly everybody's in there. And I think that's what we hope to do. We hope to really start a revolution and really start very specific therapies for, uh, for boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So, Ed, looking back at that period at Sarepta, if you had to do it all over again, would you do anything differently? If I had uh, the time, I would have had I would have had a larger study, and I would have included uh, some placebo patients because um, I think at the end it would have been faster, and we could have got the drug to children faster than what we ended up doing because we we really took a couple of years trying to negotiate our way to get an approval. And I think at the end, the most important thing is how do you get a treatment to the people who need it as quickly as possible. And I think in retrospect, if we had done a more standard path, it, it probably would have been faster. So last thing, what's the next thing we should look out for with respect to stroke in terms of news or, or clinical developments you might have on, on the horizon? We're moving faster than I actually thought. I've only been there a year. And we've managed to um, triple the, the number of employees, quadruple the size. Um, we're heading into uh, clinical development. So I think, um, uh, you know, I think what people can expect is that uh, we're going to be, we're hoping to be in Dreve in, in patients by 2020, and hopefully we'll have some, uh, some results by the middle of 2020 um, that hopefully will kind of change the face of epilepsy. So, Ed, thank you for coming. That concludes the normal part of your appearance on this podcast. However, you have agreed, perhaps you will regret this in the future, to stick around for the lightning round. So stay tuned for more with Ed K. <laughs> Thanks very much. On last week's episode, we looked back at some of the biggest biotech stories of 2018. Since this is our last podcast of the year, we wanted to spend some time here looking ahead. So let's discuss the biotech events and issues that we believe will grab headlines and attention over the next 12 months. So let's start with, with the mood. Adam, what's the sentiment going into 2019? Yeah, that's pretty easy, Damien. It's, it's dark. Uh, I would even say somewhat bleak. Yeah, and so that's definitely true from a stock market perspective. Biotech stocks are ending 2018, it, reeling from a sharp sell-off that began at the end of the summer. Adam, I assume that there'll be some kind of hangover effect as, as we turn the calendar over to 2019, but is there anything in your mind that, that might brighten the mood? You know, Damien, it does sound kind of simplistic that, you know, simply putting a bad year behind you can provide a nice psychological lift. But, you know, after that, I'd say, you know, kind of a happy, bouncy JP Morgan healthcare conference week would be a meaningful mood enhancer. And by happy and bouncy, I mean, you know, a week that's going to be filled with a lot of news, 
deals, you know, sort of confident sounding chatter, you know, and then after that, I would say, you know, maybe some sunny, warm weather in San Francisco would also be a big help. And that's a good segue to remind everyone that the stat biotech and pharma teams, including the three of us, will be in San Francisco covering the goings on of JPM week. So biotech would be pretty dull without that steady diet of catalysts, which are the clinical trial readouts, the FDA approval decisions, quarterly business updates that sort of mark the calendar each year and tend to really drive stock prices in in one direction or the other. Rebecca, what is on the docket for 2019 in the world of, you know, make or break readouts and decisions? So one of the big catalysts will be coming in postpartum depression. Uh, we'll be watching for whether Sage Therapeutics can produce a blockbuster win with its oral drug candidate in postpartum depression. Then there's the fatty liver disease called NASH, where multiple companies, including Gilead Sciences and Intercept Pharma, will be reading out results from phase three clinical trials. We'll be watching for answers to the question, you know, who is going to emerge with a winning treatment for a disease that potentially could end up being used by millions of Americans. I would also look towards uh, hemophilia A uh, and certainly a gene therapy approach to that disease. I think that's going to heat up in 2019. Uh, The biotech company Biomarin is concluding a phase three clinical trial. uh, And so with those results... We'll, we'll sort of get an answer to the question of whether or not Biomarin can kind of build an insurmountable lead over its rival Spark Therapeutics or, you know, whether the gap between those two companies will tighten. I think one of the other kind of big catalysts that I'm really interested in is, is the FDA's review of two competing sort of different approaches to the prevention of peanut allergy. Now, just on Wednesday night, uh, the FDA basically turned away a marketing application from a company called DBV Technologies. The, the delay on that is, uh, well, it's going to go into well into next year. And that actually kind of gives uh, their competing company, Amune, uh, kind of a big leg up and sort of maybe a jump ahead between those, between those two companies. We'll see what happens next year. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention perhaps the biggest potential catalyst of them all for 2019. And that's an experimental treatment for Alzheimer's. We'll be watching whether Biogen will conduct an interim clinical trial analysis and say anything about its all-important Alzheimer's drug candidate. Damien, what do you think? So yeah, the question is whether aducanumab, which is, uh, Rebecca, as you mentioned, Biogen's great big hope in, in Alzheimer's, which is now in two very large phase three trials that are expected to read out in 2020, the question is whether Biogen will take an interim look at data from those trials and release it in 2019. The company has not promised to do this. In fact, they have seemingly you know, bent over backward to not address it and to make clear that it's not in the cards or they can't be held accountable for that. And furthermore, they upped the enrollment in those trials uh, about a year ago now, which would suggest that they're going to take longer to read out than anybody expected beforehand. But there's been this, I think, kind of wishful thinking in the investment community that this interim analysis will happen and it might, you know, sort of take some of the risk out of this program or or at least give people something to talk about with respect to Biogen in 2019. But I'm very skeptical that it will actually happen. And I'm basing that solely on what Biogen itself has said for now a number of years. So, Rebecca, uh, China emerged as a big player in biotech in 2018. So I expect that storyline is going to continue next year. What are you watching for? Yeah, I think 2019 is sort of shaping up to be the year that will test whether China biotech's boom will have staying power. 
uh, I think there's some questions that the sector needs to answer. There were obviously a lot of scandals in the industry in 2018. So I'll be watching for whether China's biotech sector can quiet some of the lingering concerns about its integrity and strength. Another big issue to watch in the new year is political tensions. You know, we're seeing kind of a brewing trade war, and it'll be worth watching whether that'll slow down uh, China biotech's boom. And then finally, one thing I'll be watching for is whether promising data generated in China can actually hold up when some of these promising drugs get tested in the United States. So finally, no preview of 2019 in biotech would be complete without mentioning drug prices and what to do about them. Adam, the midterms are behind us and the Democrats are taking over the House. How will this impact efforts to rein in the high cost of medicines in this country? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the one of the outcomes of the midterm election was that Democrats, you know, sort of ran on a health care agenda. And so, you know, by winning the House, I think they probably feel pretty emboldened. And so I think what you're going to see in 2019 is is maybe more aggressive actions on the ha- on the, on the behalf of Democrats in the House. You could see a, a lot more hearings. You could see a lot more pharmaceutical company executives sort of brought in front of congressional committees to explain drug pricing. Um, so, you know that seemed like a winning strategy for them, and I think they'll continue with that. Um, you know, after that, I mean, we'll we'll have to see whether or not kind of there is a more of a bipartisan effort to to enact legislation or to do things to to tackle this whole drug pricing issue. You know, there are some relatively simple actions that might become law, and these things are like maybe removing the Medicaid rebate caps or cracking down on what is so-called sort of, quote, pay-for-delay schemes that keep generic drugs off the market. You know, then there are kind of the more far-reaching proposals, which are going to require a lot more serious work, and we'll have to see what happens. But those are things like pegging Medicare to overseas drug prices, you know, giving Medicare the power to directly negotiate drug pricing, or even stripping patents from expensive drugs. So next up, it's time for a lightning round. But we're going to shake things up this week with a fan favorite format. Ed Kay is going to join us again for this segment. So here's how it's going to work. We'll ask Ed a question in which he must pick between one of two binary options. Right, so there will be no hedging or dodging the question. Ed must pick one and only one of the two options presented to him, and we'll let him explain his reasoning. Okay, Ed, are you ready to get started? I hope so. All right, first up, where is the better place to do biotech? Boston or the Bay Area? Not a question. Boston. So are you familiar with the concept of burner Twitter accounts, and do you have one? I try to avoid Twitter if I can. And I think the reason is I would never trust myself to sit on my iPhone and come with a retort on Twitter that I haven't thought about or that I'm reacting to too quickly. Um, so yeah, that doesn't, uh, I'm a little bit more measured. He, he's so much better than the rest of us. Apparently so, but actually, so, <laughs> but just to be clear, you, so you're not taking a page from Kevin Durant, you don't have an anonymous Twitter account where you can get those retorts in without them being traceable back to you? No, I don't. Okay. No, I don't. So, Ed, this is our last podcast before the holidays, so we're going to ask you a holiday-related question. The better holiday movie, Love Actually or Bad Santa? Bad Santa. Wow. Tell us why you like Bad Santa better. Well, uh, it just has a real edge to it. And Love Actually is just, it's like pablum. It's a little bit too sweet. (laughs) 
So moving back to the news cycle, um, obviously the CRISPR baby story coming out of China um, has been a huge story in, in the last couple weeks. And so I'm curious what you think. Are we to see CRISPR babies born in 2019? It's not going to happen, certainly in this country or in, and certainly in Western Europe. I think a lot of us, I've been um, involved in, in gene therapy, which is not exactly CRISPR, uh, but the same kind of concept where you're really trying to change the human genome. I think it's too early. We do not understand the toxicity, and we're changing the human genome. It sounds like a good idea. It's a very important, powerful tool, but I think one of the things that we're doing is we're turning on things like Cas9 and the, in forever in the genome, and uh, until we know what's happening into other parts of the genome, not just a small area, uh, and we understand the toxicity, I think we could be in for some real trouble. So we've spent a lot of time talking about Moderna Therapeutics and its great big IPO. And the debate that you have or that I've heard people have is whether the company deserves that valuation that they've attained. So I'm curious, your opinion, is Moderna overvalued or do you think that they're really onto something and, and, and it all makes sense? I think the jury is not out yet. If you look at vaccines, I think they're doing some really cool stuff, and I think it has some real potential. Uh, I think in you know having some experience in mRNA, it's hard to get in. And one of the things that we appreciated at Stoke is that it's really hard to get messenger RNA into the central nervous system. That's why we switched over uh, to use our antisense approach because we know that gets into the brain. So I think until the problem with delivery gets solved, um, I think the true value of companies like Moderna, uh, I think you have to prove that, that you're worth that, that much money. Well, Ed, thanks for coming by. Happy holidays, and uh, we will see you out at J.P. Morgan. Sounds great. Thanks very much, guys. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A quick programming note, The Read Out Loud is going to be on vacation next week for the holidays. So we won't put out a show on Thursday, December 27th, but we'll be back as usual at the beginning of January. A big thank you to Alex Hogan and Hyacinth Abinato, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a standing reminder that we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you thought about this week's episode, your recommendations for future ones, or just what is most frustrating to you as you listen to the sounds of our voices. You can send us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com, and we appreciate the feedback, so thank you. And from all of us here, I want to say a big thank you for listening to The Read Out Loud in 2018. Happy holidays, and we will see you in two weeks.